You desire, <clears throat> excuse me, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So if you were here for James chapter 1, uh, you might remember that Mike said that the book of James is actually written to Jews, specifically to Jews who are living outside of Palestine, Christian Jews. All right, so this is kind of his audience. So it's not a specific church, okay? It's, it's groups, cells of Christians in, in different places, and it would theoretically be passed around uh, to these different groups to be read. So he starts off this passage by saying, you know, what's causing quarrels and fights among you? And I was interested, whenever I was, I was reading about this, that the, the word fights there, it's actually used in other places for armed conflict, okay, or, or like violent conflict, okay? Uh, and the word quarrels there is not like a healthy discussion, okay? All right, this is actually for combat without words. Uh, it's usually used for very angry disputes, all right? So... Whenever you hear, like, what's causing quarrels and fights among you, don't think, like, little, you know, don't think a healthy discussion or little uh, kerfuffles, all right, amongst brothers and sisters. It's the appropriate word, okay? All right? Rather, I want you to think about, like, these are, these are literally people at church who are about to start brawling. It's a shouting match, okay? Because they are angry about something. All right. Now, I've never been in a church where a fight broke out. All right. that would, that, I would remember that. Okay. Okay. But this is what's happening here. There, there are people who are literally on the verge of fist fighting because they're upset about something. And, uh, and he says, is it not this? Are your passions, or excuse me, yeah, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions. Okay. Also with passions, a little de defining here. This is not like, I'm passionate about this position, or I'm passionate about this cause, and so I'm fighting for it. This is actually closer to, like, pleasure. A desire for pleasure. A want for pleasure. You are passionate about your self-interest. And this is what people are fighting about. He then says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. That desire, in other versions, is actually translated as lust, okay? They're wanting for their own self. They're wanting for their own pleasure. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Um, and again, this might be kind of, I, I mentioned this last week, where they, they had this, the book, the Testaments, right, where they trace slander and violence and murder all back to jealousy. So maybe this is also uh, kind of referring to this common understanding that jealousy and coveting produces all of these, these vile things. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, <laughs> you don't get it because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, right? Your personal desires, what you want. And it, it comes with an actual a premise, which is uh, pretty interesting. All right, so the premise here, you don't have because you do not ask. The premise is that God is gracious and generous. That God wants to give people things. And that he is capable and desires to give them whatever they need. 
All right? But the problem is, is that when they're asking, they're asking wrongly. And this is a, a scenario where it's not the format. The problem isn't that they're not praying on their knees or lifting their hands or saying the right words. The problem is what they're praying for. A person shouldn't ask God to fulfill their own selfish desires and expect him to go through with it. All right? He's not going to answer a prayer with yes whenever you are asking for your wicked self-interest to be fulfilled. Um, all I can think about when I, when I hear that is a child, right? So a child begging for candy. Or a child, you know, I want more time in front of the TV. It's not good for you. You've already had a chocolate bar. You don't need ten more. Uh, my brother uh, used to work at Jiffy Loop, you know, a decade ago. He's, he has a different job now. And we'll say when he worked at Jiffy Lube, he worked with interesting people, okay? I don't know if you've been to a Jiffy Lube lately, but there's some interesting people there. And they had this one guy, uh, one of his coworkers, that literally would spend 90% of his paycheck to go and buy rolls of scratch-off lottery tickets. That was his plan, his life plan. So he would go, and he would spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars every week on scratch-offs, and he would sit there and just scratch them off for, I imagine, a long time. You know, That's it, not a little you know, one-second deal. He would spend a lot of time doing this. And I was reminded of this because the last time the lottery was over $400 million, one of my coworkers, who, uh, who is a Christian, but I don't, like, he doesn't go to church, he... Uh, or anything like that. He was like, you know, lottery's finally over 400. I'm praying that God will come through for me this time. And, you know, and I joke with him. I'm like, this is what you're praying about? <laughs> I, uh, I think you're missing the mark, right? If you're praying that God will satisfy your own personal interests, you're not praying for the right things. God is very willing to give you what you need and to give you what you ask for, but he wants you to be asking for the right things. Right? If, in, uh, in James chapter 1, he says, if you want wisdom, ask God for it. And he'll give it to you. Because, again, the premise is God is generous. And he wants good things for his children. But if, if you, like these people, are asking God to satisfy your own self-interest, your own lust, he shouldn't do it if he's good. He, like, does that make sense? He, he shouldn't be giving you what you don't need. Uh, what parent, if their kid was into drugs, would not fight to try and bring them out of that life that they know is going to harm them in the future? So he starts with this. So what, do you, what would you say? You know, you're the, uh, if you were the, the leader or one of the leaders of a, a Christian movement and you find out that your followers are asking God to help them, you know, have someone's jacket or make money so that they can go get drunk on the weekends or that they can, you know, sleep with somebody's wife. What do you, what do you say to get their attention? So this is what James says in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
you adulterous people. <clears throat> now, for you, that might not mean much. All right? We don't say, you know, that adulterous person too often. We might use other words to describe an adulterous person, but, uh, but I won't say those. Uh, he says, you adulterous people. Now, for the Israelites, okay, for the Israelites, this has historical context. All right? Whenever Israel was following other gods, all right, usually a prophet would stand up and say, you adulterous people, you're, you're cheating on God like you might cheat on your spouse. Okay, you, you, are, you are adulterous. And I tried to think of like a modern day equivalent, you know, uh, but I couldn't find anything that was both religious and offensive, you know, like where if you get called that, you're like, what? Um, so I, I, and, or at least not one that I could say here, <laughs> let's just say that, all right. uh, but maybe like, imagine this, all right, so Mike comes in, hopefully you respect Mike, so Mike comes in and he says, the way that you follow God is both twisted and offensive to me. That would get your attention. Uh, that would, or it, get, it would get my attention. Because uh, James, he is a, he's a prominent leader of this movement, right? So he's coming and he's saying, you adulterous people. And then what does he say? He says, do you not realize, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? It's pretty strong language. To say that if you are... If you are asking God to follow in your, your own passions, that you're actually not just like passively against it, but you are making yourself an enemy of God. He takes this very seriously. <clears throat> so, <laughs> it kind of brings to mind Matthew uh, 6.24, right? Um, that you cannot serve two masters, that you're either going to hate the one and love the other. Like, that's, that's the nature of that relationship. And that makes sense to me. So, like, the problem is, is, let's say I'm walking down the road holding two of my friend's hands, and all of a sudden they start going different ways. At some point, I'm going to let go of one hand and hold on to the other if they're walking in different directions. And that's kind of how this works. When he talks about the world here, all right, if you make a friend with the world or friendship with the world is enmity with God, he's not talking about the globe or the environment or the people in it. He's talking about the sin world, the world or the, the realm that exists outside of God's will. That makes sense? So he's not saying that if you're a friend with, you know, if you're taking care of the environment, you're God's enemy. That's, that's not what he's saying, okay? But if you are aligning yourself with this sin world, and walking along that way, you are not holding God's hand. You are walking away from him to the point where you're working against him. All right, God has a mission. He is working towards something. And whenever you, by your actions, are working in the sin world, you're working in opposition to him. Does that make, am I, am I track, or are y'all tracking with me? Does that make sense? Okay, good. Some assent, some silence. I like it. Uh, and again, strong language. You make yourself an enemy of God. And that's a, that's a bad place to be. 
If you believe in God, you don't want to be his enemy. And again, it, it makes sense. Um, I hold that if you, are, if you are asking God to work for your benefit, for your own selfish desires, then you have forgotten your relationship there. You are treating him like one of your servants instead of remembering you are one of his servants and need to be actively working to him or with him. So it makes sense to me that if you were to ask those kinds of things, it would require this strong language to wake them up. You adulterous people, you have gone far afield of what God wants for your life and what you should be pursuing. And then he kind of ends this portion with a section that's, that's very interesting to me. All right, He says that... Uh, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God is jealous for you. He wants you. I don't know why he wants me, but he wants me. And he's not going to lightly hand you over to the consequences of sin. He is going to work to bring you back, whatever it takes. And I hold that God is very powerful, I'm simplifying this, and very smart. (laughs) Okay? So if God is going to be working to put me in a specific scenario or situation, even if that means to bring me back, I think he's going to succeed. So you don't want to be in the position where you are working against God to the point where he has to pull you back. Um, many times in my life, you know, I have, I have felt the weight of my sin. You know, and very rarely have those, those sin actions been done for unselfish reasons. You know, I, don't, I do not lie often to spare someone else. It's usually to spare myself. I don't steal in order to give to the poor, right? If I steal, it's usually because I want whatever it is. Um, It's motivated by self-interest. And whenever I realize in that moment that my actions are in direct opposition to God, I got to confess, like, it scares me. It shames me. Because a lot of my understanding of who I am is wrapped up in the fact that I am a follower of God. Does that make sense? So if I'm a follower of God, and then I realize I'm not only not following him, I'm almost being like treasonous, working against him. It's it's in that moment where you get convicted, and it grips you. And I think that this is what James is trying to help people realize. That whenever they are fighting for their own self-interest in church... Maybe with, maybe with fists, maybe with words. That was fists, by the way. <laughs> maybe with words, okay? That they are in conflict with God, and they need to wake up and realize that they're working against him. So hopefully, whoever was doing it then is feeling that weight and is asking themselves, or saying, oh no, I don't want to be God's enemy. What do I do? What, how do I respond whenever I realize that I'm doing wrong and I need 
to do right? How do I fix this? And so we see what James's uh, maybe response to that or, or how he hopes it's working is in the next section. So we're going to pick it up in verse 6 and then read all the way through verse 10. So he says, but he gives more grace. Thank God. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He submits him, he submits, excuse me, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So what's the response? After a nice word of comfort that God is gracious, whew, it's a corrective section. So what do we do? Submit to God. Pursue God. Humble yourself. Recognize your wrong. Repent of it. Turn away from it and return to what you know to be right because God is gracious and he will not turn you away. It's a... God is always willing to restore you if you're willing to come back to him, which is great news for people like me uh, and probably people like you. Maybe not. Um, I was... He, he kind of... He says, like, be wretched and mourn and weep. And in the United States, we're terrible at mourning, okay? We keep it inside, just let it destroy us from within, you know, rather than weeping. Back then, you know, they would... They would rip their clothes, shave their heads, make some ash, and then just sit in it, crying. You know, you don't even have to know the guy, and you're like, wow, that guy's life is bad. Something's going on, all right? And I'm not, you know, I'm not recommending that, necessarily. If you just started sitting in ash at work, people might, people might notice. Um, okay, but you see this, and he says, this is, this is the response. And I was reminded of Josiah. Okay, if y'all know about Josiah. Two weeks ago, we actually talked about Josiah, so it's fresh on the brain, uh, up in the children's room. All right, and so Josiah, well, okay, but not to you guys. Well, that's why I'm going to tell you the story of Josiah. Okay. So, so Josiah uh, was a boy, eight years old, think like, gosh, almost Micah, younger than Trent and Jonah, older than Micah becomes king. Okay, he becomes the king of Israel at eight years old. All right, which is just crazy. Okay, <laughs> eight-year-olds should not be king. Uh, but he did. He became king. And then, it's not going to be Zacchaeus, just letting you know, it's going to be summarized. Yeah, so he becomes king. And then 18 years later, when he's 26, younger than me, uh, he sends a secretary off to the temple to give them some money that had been raised to, for maintenance, right? Their maintenance fund. Uh, and so the secretary gets there, and he encounters the priest, and the priest actually gives him uh, a book that they found, a book of the covenant. Maybe they were cleaning out the storage, you know, making room for whatever, and they find this book of the covenant, and he gives it to the secretary, because they don't need books of covenants in the temple. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You ever wonder, like, why things happen in the Bible? Like, you know, this is a priest, and he's, like, giving away a Bible. 
but they don't have that many Bibles anyway. So he gives the, the, book of the, the book of the covenant to the secretary who gives it to Josiah, the 26-year-old king, and he reads it. And after he reads it, he mourns. He weeps bitterly. Because in the book of the covenant, he has realized what Israel is doing wrong. Okay? By the way, if I tell you what they've been doing, which I'm about to do, you'll understand. Um, they had set up idols in the temple. They had set up sanctuaries all throughout Israel to all these other gods and had been worshiping it. So he reads this book of the law that we could probably find, the book of the covenant, and he realizes that they are in wrong standing with God. They have missed the mark by miles. All right? So what does he do? Not only does he weep, not only does he recognize they're wrong, and he weeps because they have betrayed their God, he does this. He pulls all the leaders together, and then he orders the exclusive worship of Yahweh in their land, forbidding all other forms of worship. He destroys the implements and emblems of all other gods, in the temple, and then goes and destroys all the sanctuaries everywhere in Israel to any other god. He kills all the priests to all of the other gods, and then he digs up the bones of the priests that had served the other gods and burns them on their own altars. He takes pretty extreme measures, right, to rid their entire nation of what he now knows to be wrong. And, to top it all off, he reinitializes Passover, which is a very important Jewish celebration where they remember what God did for them in Egypt. It's also where we get communion, right? The Last Supper was a Passover supper. Very important. And so he does all this. And it's not enough for us to recognize our wrong. It's not adequate. If you, if you feel that weight, right, whenever you realize, oh no, I'm an enemy of God, it's not enough just to know that. You have to change what you're doing. When you see sin in your life, you need to be willing to go to great lengths to try and remove it, to restore that right standing with God. <clears throat> second thing I want to point out about this is that uh, he calls us to be humble. So I mentioned this last week, that humility and wisdom kind of go hand in hand, that they're both pretty difficult to develop in yourself, uh, humility and wisdom. But it is appropriate that we become humble before God. It is a recognition of his place and our place. And uh, I'll come back to this again when we wrap it up. But before then, I wanted to talk about the second portion of this passage, which is 11 and 12. So in 11 and 12, it reads like this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... 
You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So, in this portion, he gives a command. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. No questions this time. They come later. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And this speak evil, it it signifies speaking anything with the intent to harm someone. All right? Uh, So it then goes into judging. So this is not, you know, coming to Michelle, my wife, and saying, Michelle, you're in sin, and you need to correct yourself. Always a dangerous statement to your spouse. Okay. Uh, but this is actually talking for their harm. You know, we, as followers of Jesus, should never take pleasure in making known the faults of others. Divulging secret things just to expose them. Or especially, especially to make up false rumors that will harm someone else. So not only should we not do that for everyone, right, our neighbors, co-workers, anyone we know, but we definitely, definitely should not do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our church members, right? That is especially dangerous. And the reason why is that the early church, and kind of I think what he means speaking against the law, is the early church had a law of love, all right? It was this law where love covers a multitude of sins, right, that love is supposed to be the defining characteristic of how we interact with the world, and again, especially other brothers and sisters in Christ, that it was something that was supposed to be there. And yet, when you speak evil, when you speak in order to harm your brother, you are indicating that your actions are above this law of love. That you know a better way to live, which is to call out somebody in a way that's harmful, rather than letting this law of love be how you act. So you're elevating yourself above this law of love. This is kind of what he's talking about, and why he says that when you do this, you are acting as judge against the law, saying that your way is better than this this way uh, with the law of love. And anytime you find yourself as judge, uh, you should probably take a breath and, and think to you. If, if anyone in here is an actual judge, you know, that's okay. <laughs> right. But anytime you are looking at somebody and evaluating their goodness, uh, be careful. Be very, very careful. Because that is not your place. God is the only judge. He has the last say. Which is good news for me and for you. All right. Uh, This is good news because then if somebody does you wrong, you don't have to worry about it. God knows. And he's going to judge that act at some point. If you're the one doing evil, you might want to reconsider Okay, because God knows, he sees it, and he is going to judge that act, even if you get away with it. Whatever you do in secret, it's just in your head. It's not secret, and it won't stay that way. Be very careful. 
When you speak evil against your brother, you have forgotten your place as a follower of a law and have elevated yourself above your station. So in both of these sections, whether you are asking God to promote your self-interest, you're fighting with your, brother's, uh, your, your brother or sister because of your own lusts and passions, or whether you're standing as judge over your brother and sister, you have forgotten your place as a servant and follower of God, or you've forgotten its implications. If you're asking God to serve you, or if you're reigning as judge, you have forgotten your place. And this kind of highlights or emphasizes the, the, the two commands, like the two greatest commandments that we have in Scripture. All right? So one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And two is love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot do either one of those if you have forgotten that you are God's servant and that you are not judge over your neighbor. Um, and it kind of reiterates a portion of last week. They lost their perspective. They forgot where they were on the totem pole with their neighbor and their church, and it is impacting how they interact with them. If you're standing as judge, you have forgotten your place. We need to be aware and careful whenever our own self-interests and passions come about, or we might find ourselves an enemy of God. And we need to be careful about the way that we evaluate people, or we might find ourselves acting as judge rather than servant. And above all, we need to remember that we are a part of God's army. We're his employees, his workers, to do as he leads. Definitely not the other way around. So, last week, I gave you some nice action items. Take home, do this. I don't know if you did. Um, this week, I don't have specific action items. Except maybe uh, to do this. To, to remember your place. And be humble. I just finished reading a book called After You Believe by N.T. Wright. And in that book, he, is, he says that humility is one of the top four Christian virtues. Humility. Top four. And the reason why he says that is because everybody has their own virtues, right? Somebody can be wise or charismatic or politically savvy and it not be Christian. But there, he says that there are certain virtues that are unique almost to Christianity. Um, he says that chastity is one of them, all right? That like sexual purity is actually a distinctive mark, right? Especially back then because people went at it like you wouldn't believe. I'm just leaving it at that. <laughs> Michelle's just hoping. Don't say anything else. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. So that, like, it was, it was all over the place. And so to not cheat on your partner, to have one wife, okay, to wait till marriage was 
Like, nobody did that. But to remain chaste and to have sexual purity was a distinctive marker. Charity was another one. Taking care of the poor. And the last one was humility. And he said it, he described it like this. Humility is hard to, to describe, okay? And I was thinking about wine. It's because, like, there's no contrast. I always think whenever I think about how to describe something, I think about how to explain it to a child, right? Because that's usually who I'm explaining it to. Um, so how do you explain humility to a child? Like, you can understand, it's very easy to describe why you don't want to be angry, okay? Because that can lead you to violence, that can lead you to hate speech, all right? It's easy to say why you don't be jealous, because that can lead to thievery or some other action. But it's a bit harder to explain why you should be humble or why you should not be proud, because it doesn't have a direct corollary action that is obvious sin. So it's hard to describe, uh, and N.T. Wright describes it like this. It's like there was a man who was very great, who didn't believe in great men. The, the act of being humble, it's not about putting yourself down. That's not what it's about. But I hold that it is about understanding your relationship with God and others. Right? It's about understanding that you are God's servant, and you are a servant to all. And letting that define how you interact with God and with others. That, that that to me is what is at the core of humility. And therefore it makes sense that he would ask us to be humble. Lower yourself. Don't think you have the right way. Come back to God whenever you realize you're wrong. And start pursuing the right way. So I would encourage you this week to think about how you can make yourself more humble to be more Christ-like, as he definitely humbled himself to come to earth and to die for me, you, us, everything. Uh, I'll leave it with that. Let's pray together. God, God, we, we know, we know you are great. We know you are good, and we know that you love us. And I just asked that this week you would be with us and help us to remember our place. To remember that we are a servant to all. Help us, Lord, to know your goodness, to be a light in a dark, in a dark area. That we are to be your servants and working for the further of your kingdom. Give us boldness and give us peace, God. And above all, let it be covered in love. Let that define our interactions with you and with others. In your name, amen. So now is the time in our service where we will actually take uh, communion.